Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 243. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And I'm here in quarantine, baby, but that's not that different for me. I work from home already, so what are my rhythms different? I just have more people in the house now. And you know who's handling it the worst? I think the worst coworker ever. Honest to God. And for those of you who don't know, there are two worst coworker ever's. Is that grammatically correct, or is it like mothers-in-law? Is it worst coworkers ever? Worst coworker evers? No, that can't be right. It's got to be worst coworkers ever. Anyway, there's two. One in particular, I think, is upset at how many people are here all day. Me, I kind of like it. I don't mind it at all. Some of y'all out there are losing your minds. I posted this on Facebook, and it's from Futurama, when a bunch of monks are locked in their like laundry room, locked in a closet. And they call out. They say, let us out. We cooked our shoes in the dryer and ate them. Now we're bored. That's what it sounds like out there sometimes. So in the spirit of livening things up, in the spirit of trying to give you some content to focus on other than this damn virus, I'm relaunching my show. That's right. And it just so happens that last week was six years of being on the air. I'm going to talk about this more later this week with my official sixth anniversary episode. But yes, more than 250 episodes, six years, it's been amazing. And I thought, you know, now more than ever is the time to create good content, is the time to talk to interesting people, to give people something positive to focus on. Because I'll be honest with you, I believe myself to have the best damn show in Denver. I would put my interviews against any other interviews out there. And you can take that to the bank. So, in the spirit of that, and since everyone's locked in their house, there's still publicity that needs to happen, right? There's still artists, there's comedians, there's authors, there's tons of cool people out there with not a lot to do. Let's talk to them. And I've already got a murderer's row of guests coming at you very, very soon. So, let's create some awesome content. I want to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a cool job? Do you know someone with a great story? Is it you? Are you listening to the show thinking to yourself, you know... I have cool stuff. I'd love to talk to John. Hit me up. The email is john at deftcom.us. That's J-O-N at D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Reach out to me. I want to hear from you. I'm also on social media. I got a guest through that. Hit me up through the Facebook Messenger. That's J-O-A-T pod across platforms. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Probably don't hit me up on Pinterest or Snapchat. I'm not really on those anymore, but I've got the rhythm of saying those five platforms in that order now, so I can't go back. I can't undo it. Now, I know I promised you a distraction from this freaking virus, but that comes later in the week. First, it would be a dereliction of duty if I didn't at least address it or talk to someone who knows a lot about it. And like manna from heaven... I got a phone call from Avi Bulow. You may remember Avi. He was on my show a while back. He's an entrepreneur, launched Bulow Jewelers a couple of years ago. And full disclosure, Deft has worked with Avi in his business. Independent of that, he just called me up and he said, hey, you know what? My brother is at Tufts University and he's getting his MD and PhD in molecular microbiology. What does that mean? He's studying viral entry. And his mother, his dear sweet mother, who I've never met, but sounds like a lovely person, asked him to put together some thoughts that she could share with people. Look, he's not a medical professional yet. He's still in the midst of school, but he's got a lot of insight into what's going on right now with coronavirus. So he put together this like seven-minute little spiel talking about numbers, talking about why social distancing matters, why you need to wash your hands, infection rates, things like that. I heard it and I thought, this is great. I'd love to talk to him. So on the show today is Uri Bulow. And as I said, he's an MD and PhD student in molecular microbiology at Tufts University. And on this week's show, we talk about a lot of things. Now, some of this is fairly standard in terms of the format of this show. I talk about the path that led him to pursuing his MD and PhD and why he's focusing on viruses specifically. We also have a couple of jokes about the movie Outbreak 
and that crazy disease that's in that, Motaba, and how that actually wasn't that far off from reality, which just chilled me to my core. We talk about the difference between being smart and being good at school, a distinction that I think matters quite a bit. And so that's like the first half. It's kind of a nice slice of life where we're joking around, we're talking, and I should tell you, this entire episode isn't super heavy. Now, we talk about very important things, and we talk about some of them in a very pointed and nuanced way, because this subject certainly deserves that. That's not to say it's dour. It's not to say it's a slog to listen to. This is fun. He's a great guy. We get along really well. I mean, I would expect nothing less. Avi has turned into just a really great person in my social circle. I adore the time I get to talk to him and spend with him. Why should his brother be any different? So as it pertains to coronavirus, here are some of the things that we talk about. Why infectious disease doctors are so scarce in America and the perverse disincentive that they face in trying to become infectious disease doctors. We talk about the pronounced vein of anti-intellectualism that runs through this country that is as old as this country is. We talk about how the country botched the response to this pandemic from the very beginning. Now, I don't care what your political ideology is. I would say no one is enjoying our current situation. And if you disagree with that and you go, no, you know what? Things are great. Things are hunky-dory right now. You are probably a part of the problem. And I think it's unquestioned that we probably could have taken steps sooner. And Uri shares his perspective with me about how that might have manifested. We talk about why it's such a big deal when viruses cross the species barrier and how that actually works. Now, that to me is fascinating. And he gives a great, simple explanation for it. And we talk about how we can avoid this in the future. We went 100 years in this country without really, really bad pandemics sweeping through the country and a lot of lives lost. So how do we avoid that in the future? Now, I'll tell you what this podcast isn't. It's not a rote recitation of facts that you already know. It's not a collection of commonly held knowledge about facts about coronavirus or COVID-19. You can get that anywhere. What it is, is my own unique take with someone who knows quite a bit about what's going on and me sitting down with them, having a conversation that is both informative and entertaining, so I think you'll enjoy it. I know you're probably burned out on coronavirus. I am too. So I can promise you that while this won't be the last time that this comes up at all, I mean, this is at the forefront of all of our minds, so it only follows that we're going to talk about this at least tangentially, this will be the last time I dedicate significant bandwidth to talking about it. I guarantee you that going forward, we're going to have fun. We're going to get your mind off something else. And I promise to bring you the best content that I can as I have for the last six years. So thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for making me a part of your life. And thank you for the opportunity to share with you my own little corner of the earth. I'm proud of this show and I adore you for listening to it. So, so let's get to episode 243 of the John of All Trades podcast. I've got Uri Bulow. He is an MD and PhD student in molecular microbiology at Tufts, and his episode starts right now. I live literally downtown in Chinatown, uh, and it is always packed here, but for the last two weeks it has been. Uh, Pretty quiet. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say empty, but you know we're getting pretty close to it. Yeah, it's surreal, right? It's kind of like that movie I Am Legend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I heard a great description. Somebody said it's like a neutron bomb went off. Yeah. So all the buildings are still there, but the people are gone. Yeah, no joke. What's the weather like there? I don't know. I'm not going outside. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's, it's all right. It's, uh, it's been you know typical early spring, late winter, cold and rainy. Yeah kind of shitty yeah no i believe that uh i saw a guy i was just like passing by my front door and this guy just walked down the street with a shovel was just shoveling off anyone's sidewalks who hadn't yet done it yet and i thought you know what that's a good samaritan good for that guy yeah yeah, yeah what a what a bro yeah totally good for that guy so and usually bro has such a negative connotation but right. uh, <laughs> yeah uh, yeah he's uh to rehabilitate the term <laughs> <laughs> you're you're doing yeoman's work there. He's uh he's a he's a mensch, right? Yeah, exactly. He's a, he's a real mensch. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. So uh, this is Uri Bulo, and we were introduced thanks to your brother Avi, who I've had on this show before. Mm -hmm. 
and actually done some work for. And so he thought you'd be a good person to talk about or to talk to me about this sort of COVID-19 madness, because tell me exactly where you are right now in your educational process. Okay, so I am an MD-PhD student. So that means I'm both doing medical school and getting a PhD. And the focus of my PhD is on viral entry. So I study a different virus, but I, uh, I study how viruses get into cells, Okay, uh, which feels pretty relevant right now. Feels apropos, and, yes. Yes. I'm uh, five and a half years into uh, what would be a seven-year program for me. So oh, I'm just geez. finishing my PhD right now. Okay. Wow. Uh, that is quite the program. So you're talking, you're, you're dealing with viral entry. What virus are you working with specifically? So I work on a virus called Lassa, which is the original Ebola. Oh, okay. Uh, but Ebola got a little bit sexier in the last decade. <laughs> but uh, Lassa also causes a hemorrhagic fever. It is endemic to West Africa. Uh, and there's actually a current outbreak in Nigeria Jeez. But it's not getting a lot of media attention due to, you know, other viral outbreaks. <laughs> no, I imagine not. Um, is anyone yeah. is anyone studying Motaba from the movie Outbreak? Uh, you know, that's really a, a, an area that's being neglected, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, we're not putting as many dollars there as we should. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. Although I saw yeah. Outbreak starting to trend on Netflix recently, and I thought... You know, even with as bad as the coronavirus or COVID-19, I, I am unclear on the preferred nomenclature for this. But Oh, yeah. I, I got you on that, actually. So the, the virus, this is kind of like an HIV-AIDS situation. Okay. So the virus is called SARS-CoV-2. Okay. Uh, and it causes the disease COVID-19. But you can call it the coronavirus. Everybody's going to know what you're talking about. Yeah, colloquially, I think that's where it goes. Yeah. But for as, yeah. for as bad as it is, at least it's not liquefying our insights and, you know, putting lesions on our skin the way Motaba and yeah, Outbreak was. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, pretty lucky there. No liquefaction. <laughs> yeah, no, no organ liquefaction. Yeah, uh, I'll take it. Yeah, uh, me too. And that one, you'd start, uh, you'd just start decaying from the inside within like 24 hours. I mean, probably yeah, that, exactly. that's Hollywood, but, you know, still. Terrifying. You know, so I actually just watched the movie um, this week. I'm, I'm one of the people that saw it trending on Netflix and turned it on. Yeah. It's not, I mean, obviously it's, it's you know, uh, uh, touched up for Hollywood, but it's not that far off. A 24-hour onset is, is a little bit ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But the Zaire strain of Ebola has something like a 90% uh, mortality rate, or, or it did. It often causes people to like bleed out of their eyes. You know, it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a terrifying virus. Motava is a it's a terrifying virus, but the most terrifying part is that it's based on something real. Yuck! Oh, okay, I probably could have yeah. lived my whole life without knowing that. Yet, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, things you can't unknow, right? So, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, whatever. Um, okay, so. Your degree right now, pursuing the MD and the PhD, which, by the way, is remarkable because, I mean, what percentage of MDs actually have the PhD? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm not sure. It's low. Yeah. Um, you have to be a real psycho to do both. <laughs> well, congratulations uh, to you then. I appreciate it. Uh, I know that – so uh, I'm in something called the Medical Scientist Training Program, uh, which is funded by the National Institutes of Health. And something like 30 medical schools have them. And I think that there's something around uh, 150 of us per year uh, that enter training. And, and so I, of 150? Of I'm sorry? Of, of those 150, how many make it all the way? It's pretty high. I'd okay. say uh, about 99 you know, percent. Okay. So once you get to that point, you go, okay, I'm, I'm all in here. There's, there's really no... Right, yeah. Hitting the ejection seat once I get this far. Right. Yeah. They, so they actually, they're clever because that used to be a bigger problem. So the way they've organized these programs now is that you, you don't get one degree and then the other. Um, so for instance, I have done two years of medical school already. Uh -huh. I'm just finishing up my PhD now. 
and that I'm going to go back for another two years of medical school. Oh, my. So at no point could I have dropped out and just, just at no point could I have dropped out and, and practiced medicine. Oh, okay. Um, you got to see it through. It used to be that people would do one or the other, and a few schools still do that, but they had higher dropout rates. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so mm-hmm. given that you are self-describing here as kind of a psycho to do both, what ultimately led you on this path, and what 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 were the steps that led you to go, you know what, viral entry is what interests me most. So can you take me through a little bit how you got there? Sure. So uh, I've always liked science, always been a big old nerd, and I went. I did my undergrad at uh, the University of Colorado in Boulder. Mm-hmm. I studied molecular biology, and I took this super cool class taught by, I took many cool classes, but one of the ones that I loved was this class on microbiology taught by his professor, Shelley Copley, who is a huge badass. Everybody should Google her. Okay. Uh, so she taught us all kinds of cool stuff about, I had been learning all these rules about biology for four years, and then I took this really cool class that showed me essentially that all the rules that I had been learning were really true for uh, humans, and not humans and mammals, and about mammals and eukaryotes, okay. but uh, almost every rule that you learn in biology is broken when you start learning about microbes, so bacteria, viruses, things like that. And I always really enjoyed uh, learning about the exceptions and the way that you know nature likes to break the rules. Yeah. Um, so I started working in a lab. Uh, I started working for a different professor of mine, uh, during my senior year and for two years after that. And the lab was, it was actually a molecular cardiology lab, but, and we were, so we were looking at, at, um, at a gene called beta cardiac myosin. So if you ever heard those stories about kids who are playing basketball and just drop dead yeah. uh, from this disease called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and it's usually genetic, and the gene is happens to be this incredibly large, like very long gene. And longer genes, for whatever reason, are more difficult to work with. So if you're trying to study the disease in cells, you got to engine, you got to introduce this mutated gene. Okay. It's hard to do with conventional methods. So the lab that I was working with was designing a particular kind of virus to move this, you know, the mutated genes we'd seen in patients into cells in a dish so that we could study the disease a little bit better. Wow. Uh, but the, the process was really kind of um, shitty. I don't know if I can swear. Yeah, no, you're fine, uh, man. It's Hey, you know what, okay. Uri? It's the internet. So right, yeah, no one cares. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no one gives a shit to so, put a finer point yeah. on it. So the, the process of, of moving these large genes around through these viruses was – was shitty. It was really low efficiency. Uh, we we had to like we had to do a ton of work for very little payoff. And so one of the projects that I was put on was how do we make this better? How do we improve the uh, efficiency of this of this process? And so one of the things I started to look at was, okay, we're using this virus to move this this gene around. How can I increase the the efficiency of that entry process? Because that's one of the places where we are having a block. So uh, I got to work on that for a while, and I realized that I ended up. Caring, I was more interested in the virology aspect than I was in the cardiology. Yeah. Uh, and so when I got into this program and I got to grad school, I decided that I was going to study viruses uh, instead of studying hearts. Okay. But you can do both. Totally. Okay. Let me pause you there real quick. You'll quickly realize over the course of this conversation, uh, my brain is warped by pop culture. So what's what's interesting to me is hearing you say you're trying to use this virus to to you know, put this gene in an environment where you can study it and you have to use a virus for that. And I think most people, when they think about viruses, think of them almost as the enemy, right? <clears throat> where right. any, any time you hear about a virus, it's in a negative context. It's right. Uh, yeah. And especially right now, but you're using a virus for good. It's almost like in Terminator two, <laughs> when they take one of the cyborgs and use it for good to protect John Connor. And so, yeah, exactly. So, my question to you is um, in terms of viruses, I think what you just described to me surprised the shit out of me, number one, and I think it's probably surprising to others. But are there other instances where viruses are used in a positive way? 
Yeah, totally. So viruses, if you think about them uh, the way I do, they are essentially these tiny little machines that are optimally designed for taking genes and putting them into cells. And so in nature, when this happens, it's usually to our detriment, right? So it's the flu coming in and making us sick. But we can take those viruses and we can engineer them to be little robots for us, you know, little nail robots. Um, And so gene therapy uh, especially makes use of this where we can – there are a bunch of diseases so for, that are caused by one, by, but that are caused by a mutation in a single gene. So sickle cell anemia is a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the therapies that is that people are working on that's pretty promising for sickle cell anemia is using a virus to deliver a gene to correct the problem in these cells, and you know turn off the the gene that's not functioning well and introduce one that is. Wow. So if you just edit what's inside of the virus, you can have it do, you know, whatever you want. That's wild to me. And yeah. I mean, so what, you know, why would I have any knowledge of that? Why, why would anyone, unless you're in this field? Um, right. But that, that's absolutely fascinating to me. Is there risk in doing that? I mean, you're working with viruses and given that our cultural understanding is almost exclusively negative, by doing this, I imagine there's a lot of tests that you have to do, but, you know, does it carry risk? Does a virus itself, can it mutate and then, you know, start working malevolently as opposed to benevolently? So that's a really great question, and that's something that we take very seriously. One of the things that we do is we make, when we engineer these viruses for our own use, we, uh, like I said, we're able to control the genes that are inside of our engineered viruses. And so all wild viruses, uh, well, almost all wild viruses, nature loves to break the rules. <laughs> almost all wild viruses are capable of replicating inside of a cell, right? So they bring, they bring all the genes that they're going to need to make more of themselves. But when we make viruses as tools, as a safety measure, we make them unable to self-replicate. So okay. they, are, they are capable of going in, delivering that gene, but they don't have the molecular machinery or instructions available to them to make more of themselves. Ah. Uh, and so we're able to engineer in a bunch. If that's one fail-safe that we use, we usually have about um, a triple redundancy <laughs> to make sure that we're not making any Godzilla viruses. <laughs> yeah, or uh, and, you know, uh, heeding, heeding the advice of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, right? We're trying to right, make sure exactly. that nature doesn't find a way. Right. So we try to we always try to prevent that as much as possible. Absolutely. Uh, And then the other thing that we do is we typically work with milder viruses. We engineer the milder viruses. So, for instance, the virus that I was using in uh, that lab in Boulder was uh, something called an adenovirus, which causes a common cold. Okay. Um, So no organ melting, you know, if things (laughs) go awry. Yeah, no, no hideous lesions. No, uh, right. as one of the characters describes, it looks like a bomb went off in this guy. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, so you're studying this. You realize that studying viruses was more interesting to you than studying cardiology. So mm-hmm. you pivot. Um, what ultimately made you decide to get both the MD and the PhD? For me, I, uh, I knew for a long time that I wanted to get a PhD, uh, and I figured... Uh, most PhD programs in biology are about six years. Most MD PhD programs are about eight years. Hmm. And I figured, what the hell? It's an extra two years to throw in an MD. I might as well. Because uh, <laughs> at the time, I didn't know what a residency was. Oh, sure. <laughs> no. Uh, or, so uh, I didn't realize that I was signing up not just for an extra two years or an extra degree, but in fact, a whole different, you know, yeah, lifestyle. Uh, basically, yeah, a, a whole shitload of schooling. That that, yeah. you, that you didn't necessarily bank on, or maybe were a little bit cavalier in examining. Right. Well, you know the the advice that you always get, you know, in, in high school and college, and trying to figure out what to do with your life is, uh, you know, people say do what you're good at, and so I decided that uh, I'm just going to stay in school forever because that's what I'm good at. You know, it's funny uh, <laughs> to a much smaller degree. That was the reason I got a master's degree was because I'm approaching senior year of, you know, my undergraduate 
And I'm like, I don't want to get a job. Like, I have nowhere near the emotional maturity to get a job. Right, yeah. uh, to, and so I'm like, my, my friend was actually sitting in the back of class with me. He's like, Hey, have you looked at the master's program here? And I go, no. And so he told me about it and I have mine in communication studies. So rhetoric, media studies, that kind of thing. And I looked at it and I'm like, wow, you teach public speaking and they pay you to go to school. That's wild. I'm so into that. And I get to keep studying yeah, this. Sweet. Right. Yeah. Like this subject matter that I'm really into and that I'm good at. And I mean, <clears throat> Uri, what's, what's your feeling on this? And th this is not a, a completely either or proposition, but I think there are people who are smart who are not good at school. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are good at school who are not necessarily all that smart. Would you agree yep. with that? A hundred percent. And I, I mean, think, so I, I think, uh, Avi, my brother is such a good example of that. Oh, totally. Uh, he is. He's so smart. He's got such great business acumen. When we were a kid, we'd be playing Monopoly, and he he invented the concept of insurance while playing Monopoly. <laughs> Essentially, he'd have a he'd have uh, some properties with hotels on them, and as soon as you're getting to within you know twelve spaces, he would offer you a discount that you could pay before you roll. Right, so it's going to cost you I don't know eight hundred bucks to land on the yellow properties or something, whatever it was. And he would say, for 250 bucks before you roll, if you pay me that now, no matter where you land, I won't charge you anything. <laughs> Genius. He came up with that at like 11. Dude, that's wild. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, Avi is crazy smart, and school is not his jam. No, he. it's funny. I was, uh, I was helping him with this thing recently. And, uh, he conveyed similar thing to me. I'd never heard that Monopoly story though. That one, that's gold. I've never heard anything like that. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. Uh, but yeah, no, like to your point, he's like, I, I didn't like school. You know, I wasn't good at school. I wasn't into it. And so, you know, my, my pursuits and my passions were elsewhere. And you're right. He is a smart, really like incisive, brilliant dude. Mm -hmm. But yes. Yeah. yeah he really is. To basically repeat what you said to me, school wasn't his jam. So, yeah. um, I fancy myself a smart guy, but I was always good at school too. So, right, yeah, it's it's uh, nice when you when you can grow up with uh, adults patting you on the head. You know, <laughs> you did well on exams. And everybody oh, tells you that you're smart. Totally, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a shortcut. So yeah. to to adulation, but yeah, it's a shame that we don't have that that sort of uh, confidence building for people who are smart in other ways. Or at least not as institutionalized. No, and uh, and there are a lot of different kinds of intelligence out there. No, I agree, and definitely not at like there, there's almost a prescribed kind of one way of doing things. You know, like w there's there's one path. It's like you go, you know, you graduate high school, you go to college, all that, and that's really not for everyone. And I think that's to our detriment in a lot of ways. I agree. I I actually. Um... Which is funny really because you, you you are getting more school than anyone, and it's it's cool that you agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I, it's not for everybody. I mean, you know, this happens to be something. I I think that uh, that the way I can best uh, serve uh, my community and my country is by being the best scientist and doctor that I can be. And I don't think that everybody has to go and be a scientist and a doctor. I think that for some people, the best way you can build build up your community is. You know, through carpentry, go build some houses and, you know, furniture and stuff like that. I don't have the skills to do that. And I am so impressed by the people who have the hand-eye coordination and the ability to think in, like, those three dimensions to go and actually construct something. Oh, totally. That's wild to me. Well, and, did, uh, I, I, know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for people like that. I 100% agree. I had a guy here who was an electrician, and, we, you know, we're having – like no one, no one thinks about electricians until you are really thinking about an electrician, right? Yeah, and until it's an emergency. Totally. So he comes and he's like, "I've got a great life, you know. Like I'm good at this. I like it. I find it interesting. It's different every day." But here's the thing: like I wasn't gonna, I like I could go get an electrical engineering degree in college, but that that's only useful up to a point when I'm doing stuff like this and I go, wow, you know, you, you've got a great point and you are someone who is doing something that I cannot and never could do. So my respect yeah. for you is huge. Yeah, absolutely. It also brings up something that I think uh, that we've kind of lost from our culture to our detriment, which is learning through apprenticeship. 
Totally. I think that hands-on learning is something that uh, is so valuable, and we tend to devalue it really uh, to our detriment. So, for instance, in Italy right now, during this pandemic, they have scrapped all the final exams for their for their medical students who are about to graduate, mm-hmm. and they're conscripting them to come and help help out with the pandemic. But Italy also Italy has a very different medical training system than the U.S. So, in in Italian medical schools, people get very little clinical exposure. Oh, okay. And so it's very nice that these that these uh, medical students are you know being rushed in a few months early to come and help out with this pandemic, but they actually have very little technical skill, which is not to say that you can't be a help. You know, somebody has to man the phones and somebody, they can still do triage. You know, uh, you don't need a lot, sure. of, a lot of clinical exposure to see when somebody's having trouble breathing. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. That, that's fairly obvious. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because you, that's a good transition point to talk about our current situation. It's interesting to me that as you are pursuing this degree in viral entry and now COVID-19, the coronavirus, has consumed all of our lives. Granted, I work from home in general, so my life doesn't look all that different than it did. People are freaking out. It's been less than a week, and they've been in their homes for a week, and they're all freaked out about like, oh, I'm getting so bored, and I miss people. And I'm like, it's not even been a week. Like, good Lord. Yeah, it's rough. (laughs) But how do you feel... Given that this is happening now, like, are you more emboldened in your choice? Are, are you dispirited by what you see? What's your general feeling about pursuing this as your vocation and as your education as this is happening? Sort of like the overtones of this are all encompassing. There's something that uh, I think that a lot of people don't know. I have never felt like my PhD is more relevant than right now. Oh, sure. Um, one of the things that is upsetting to me is that. Our country has a dearth of infectious disease doctors. So uh, if somebody wants to be an infectious disease doctor, they have to do a residency in internal medicine, and then they have to do a fellowship to further specialize in infectious disease. Once they do that fellowship to further specialize in infectious disease, their earning potential decreases. Oh, geez. So we disincentivize people from becoming infectious disease specialists in this country. It's something that we actively discourage. And uh, I think that not a lot of people know that. And I think that's something that needs to be um, brought to the public's attention. What, what is that a product um, of, Uri? You know, I actually don't know. I, I don't know um, how remuneration is worked out for infectious disease doctors. Uh, they teach you very little about the healthcare system in medical school and much more just about, you know, health. Oh, sure. But I, I do know that that is a problem. And so what, uh, you know, today is actually match day. So today is the day that uh, all fourth-year medical students find out where they're going to go for their training. Oh. Um, and so there's a similar thing uh, after residency if you want to do a fellowship uh, where people are placed into these uh, training programs. And every year, things like cardiology and oncology, those are very competitive specialties because they pay very nicely and they're very interesting. And so those spots are highly coveted, they're, and they're full. You know, every single cardiologist in the country every year. I live next door to uh, a cardiologist, so yes. Yeah. So the cardiologists are—they're very smart people. I have a lot of respect for them. Uh, but when we have that—that uh, that same process applies to infectious disease specialties, and we have a lot of open spots uh, that are, go unfilled every year meaning that we have the potential to train more without increasing our infrastructure. There's just not a lot of desire because I don't know of a lot of people who want to take a few extra years of training to get a pay cut. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Given, <clears throat> given the, the amount of like the, the high level of bills that you have going through any level of medical school, even if you're a veterinarian, like I, I've, right. I've had a vet on this podcast before and she told me like her bills are comparable to those of someone going through I would call it regular medical school and I thought that's insane yeah. because the the earning potential for a vet is not great right and so I think I think doctors get shit on a lot for making a lot of money oh but, sure uh, doctors don't make any money until they're out of residency really I mean residents make some money but it comes out to about $12 an hour for somebody with an MD <laughs> Jeez. Um, 
And so they don't make real money until they're done with residency, so they're in their mid-30s or maybe even older. Um, and then they have to pay off a quarter million dollars in debt that's accruing interest. Um, so I think, uh, you know, as a whole, medical, you know, medical professionals are, are, are paid, you know, somewhat nicely. But I, I don't begrudge somebody from, uh, from turning down a job that's going to pay them less. You know, well, well I, I, no, no, certainly not. And I mean, it, if if you take the salary of a doctor, any doctor really, out of context, it looks like a lot. But right. understanding the road to get there, I think, um, requires a little bit more nuance. And you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, like if I've taken economics 101, then examining this just, you know, objectively, the value proposition. It's not a suite of the deals, it sounds. No, no. <laughs> No, yeah. it's it, it's like renting a car, and you know you find out about all the undercoating and supplemental insurance, and you know right. it's, yeah, exactly. You can have this for nineteen dollars a day, and you get the bill, and you go, "How did this come out to be like sixty bucks a day?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great analogy. Yeah, no, I get you. Okay, so you said there's a disincentive for doctors to go into infectious diseases. And so we have a dearth in this country. Is it different in other countries? Because you look at countries like South Korea that seem to be handling this a little bit better. Um, it is the system set up differently there to where they are better equipped for this? Or what do you attribute that to? So the short answer is I don't know, I don't know enough about uh, other countries' medical systems to, to really comment intelligently on how they're set up. Sure. But I, I do know enough about this pandemic to say that it's not the amount of infectious disease doctors that is determining our national response. So this is something that has to come. Our, our response to a pandemic of this magnitude is not going to be determined uh, at a hospital level. It literally needs to come from the White House and from Congress and right. from the Centers for Disease Control. I mean, this is the single largest pandemic that we have, or it potentially can be, um, since 1917 to 1919, the Spanish flu, which, by the way, was not Spanish, but it was a flu. All right. Uh, <laughs> it started in Kansas, as far as we know. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so the the reason that other countries have been able to get a handle on this more readily is I think that they are more comfortable with science guiding their decisions than we might be in this country at the moment. So our our public handling of this has been botched from the very beginning. We knew about this epidemic starting in China, starting in late December. We saw that it was getting bigger all through January. It, you know, escaped into Europe with the first deaths occurring outside of China in February, and we sat on our hands and did nothing. The World Health Organization offered us testing kits that we turned down uh, in order to make our own. We shipped out, the Centers for Disease Control shipped out our own testing kits uh, that were faulty. So uh. not only did we turn down ones that worked, we made ones that didn't. And so capacity to test at high levels. Whereas South Korea has been testing almost all of their citizens, they've done hundreds of thousands of tests, and they are going to be able to turn the uh, turn the corner on this uh, or get a grip on it uh, much more readily than we are. Well, it, it strikes uh, me that the testing is really where the rubber meets the road here, because we can't just all social distance each other and lock down our homes and you know completely kneecap our economy indefinitely. And right. until you can start testing people and really isolating those folks, you know, otherwise we're just sort of living in a in a culture of blind fear, and that's really no right. ra no way to run a railroad. Yeah, no, you're 100 percent right. We need to start testing. We need to do um, contact tracing. So that's where you know you have somebody comes in with symptoms, you give them a test. Uh, if the test comes out positive, you find out who they've been interacting with for the last 10 days. And you start monitoring those people, too, and making sure that they can't spread it to other people. And that's how we're going to beat this. I don't, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but we're probably not going to have a vaccine for at least 18 months. Right. Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, wildly optimistic. Well, and, and Uri, that that's not a terribly hot take. I mean, if you've read any right, coverage yeah. on this, you know, that sure. th that's that's not you're not the first person I've heard that from. Uh, here is a hot take. We uh, don't have a, a vaccine for the original SARS yet, and uh, that's been 15 years. Oh, okay, then. And we've been working on a vaccine for HIV since the late 60s. 
So uh, we've had over 189 vaccine trials for HIV, all of them unsuccessful. So vaccine design is not, for some viruses, it's, it's as simple as you grow up the virus, you cook it a little bit so that it's dead, and you, uh, you can inject that into people. They won't get sick, and they'll develop an immunity. And for other viruses, we have no idea how to make a good vaccine for them because it's, it's just eluded us at every turn. And HIV is the, is the prime example for that. So no one really knows how it's going to shake out with this. 18 months is assuming essentially that we can, you know, grow up a bunch of this and cook it. Yeah. Uh, but there's no guarantee that that works. If there's going to be something that's more nuanced that's required. Who knows how long it'll take. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's sort of dispiriting to hear, obviously. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it is a dose of reality, which speaks to the need for more testing. Um, and, and getting, and, and you said contact tracing, which is interesting to me because on a personal note, last Wednesday, we flew down to Phoenix, uh, before. And so like we were, we had this trip on the books, we were going down there. There was a little bit of concern, but it blew up while we were down there. And I'll give you an example. We were in a restaurant and the nuggets were playing, uh, the Mavericks on TV. And in the middle of that game, the NBA came on and announced that the rest of the, or at least for the foreseeable future, the season was suspended. And from there, you started seeing school cancellations, closures, you know, canceling all sports, uh, social distancing. And we're sitting down there thinking, good God, we have to get on a plane again in a few days. Yeah. And to the credit of the good people at Southwest Airlines, the entire plane smelled heavily of Clorox wipes. And, and so... You know, and we brought our own. We wiped down everything ourselves as well. And, you know, we're doing the best that we can with, with all the hand washing and we're distanced from people. The flight was only half full, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, there is no way that we've all been walking around this long that, that some of us have to have it, right? Yeah. So that's one of the problems with testing right now uh, is that we have no, we don't actually know how many people in the U.S. have this. I mean, so right now we have, Something like uh, 20,000 confirmed cases in the United States. I think 4,000 4, of those are from yesterday. Oh, gosh. So, and, and that's just confirmed cases. So we actually have, we have almost no idea of how many people are actually infected, but it is at minimum 10 times that. We're probably talking, you know, 100,000 to 200,000 people infected right now. One of the big problems with this virus is that people who are infected are asymptomatic for a median of five days, but there have been reports of up to 27 days. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and so people can be going around. They're not wildly infectious before they're asymptomatic, but they're a little bit infectious, uh, probably. I mean, all, all these data are very preliminary, so nobody really knows yet, and probably nobody will for a while. But people can feel perfectly healthy and go travel somewhere and then develop these symptoms, and now you've brought the disease to somewhere that previously didn't have it. And that's probably what was happening for the last, two months. And I suspect that we are going to be seeing, if you'll pardon my language, a shitload more cases in the next week. Well, and, so. and paradoxically, this, this is both kind of a good news, bad news thing, right? You've got people walking around who are likely infected. They have this, but aren't showing any symptoms. And from what I've read, the, the majority of people who experience this will have mild, moderate, or sometimes even no symptoms, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's both a good news, bad news thing, right? Because the good news is most people won't feel any severe effects from this. But the right, eighty percent of people are going to feel like they got the you know normal seasonal flu, which sucks. But you know you're not going to go to the hospital or anything. No, no, you'll you'll be down for the count and you know kind of achy and unpleasant, and it sucks to take a deep breath and you know you're hacking and all that. Right. But you could be walking around just giving this to everyone, and it's. From what I've read, the big problem is giving it to people who are immunocompromised or you – you. so one thing we haven't brought up yet, but you did just an audio recording kind of laying out the facts and laying out some of the, some of the pertinent statistics regarding coronavirus here. And first of all, before we get into that – I lost my train of thought – but why did, you, why did you sort of put that audio together and who did you give it to? So um... – I actually put that together for my mom. Uh, she she texted me and asked me if, if I could write something or record something 
that explain to people what this virus is, what the pandemic is, what are we looking at, you know, uh, nationally and worldwide, and and what are some of these more specialized terms that are now being thrown around in the media a lot. So, for instance, there's this R not figure, which is the replication number um, for a virus, and that that usually describes, or not usually, it does describe how infectious uh, particular viruses or other pathogen. You can use it for bacteria too. And so she asked me to, to put together um, some information about this. And I thought that uh, uh, I might not be a doctor yet. This is my area of expertise. I mean, I don't work specifically on, on coronaviruses, but I think it's somewhat my, I, I thought it was my duty to put together something informational and factual yeah. um, and level-headed. So I, I wrote this, uh, this little thing I ended up recording it because my mom asked me to, and then I'm pretty sure she sent it to every single person she's ever met. <laughs> well, I, not to be too cute about this, but your brother told me it went viral. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know about all that, but, uh, but it certainly you, went to a few more people than I expected. Well, certainly. I mean, Avi shared it with me when he proposed this idea to me, and so I listened to it. I thought, this is great. This is really factual, and I'll... I'll likely include it somewhere in in the body of this of the companion blog piece that goes up with this episode, just because it's a nice sort of recitation of facts presented without hysterics or you know really like it's it's sort of just objective stuff presented without blame, which I think there there's a certain subset of the population that wants to get defensive or want to. Uh, and and I don't want to say make this political because part of it does deserve to be political. Right. But you, you also kind of just want objective analysis and a set of facts that you can go off of by someone who doesn't seem to have any ulterior motive or agenda. Right. Yeah. So I appreciate that. That's That's kind of what I was going for. I feel like people should know what this is, why social distancing matters. Um, you know, even if you don't think you're going to die from it, why, why is it still a good idea? Why is it still your civic duty to, to, to take this seriously? Exactly. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's no victim shading in, in this. I mean, this is a virus, right? Nobody, nobody made this, contrary to some of the stuff you might read on Facebook. Yeah. Nobody made this. This is nobody's fault. Nature is filled with viruses that infect other species, and when they cross the species barrier and start to infect humans, it's a big deal because our bodies have never seen anything like it before. And so they can wreak havoc on us. And that's what we're dealing with right now. So, um, and so that's what we were dealing with a century ago with the Spanish flu. Okay. And so it, it, it behooves us at this moment to, to understand a little bit what we're dealing with and to be a little bit level-headed, but also to exercise appropriate caution. No, 100%. And so uh, I remember when I got married – in 2009, H1N1 was a big thing, and that was also called swine flu. So is that an example of this crossing from species, or I'm sorry, crossing species into humans? Yeah, it was. So uh, the, there's there's two kinds of flus that we worry about. The seasonal flu is one that travels around the world mutating as it goes, but not mutating enough to be able to reinfect people the next year, but your body still recognizes it somewhat and is capable of dealing with it. Most people are not going to die from it. Right. Uh, but there are influenza as a virus doesn't only infect humans, and there are strains that uh, infect primarily birds. And so we monitor those strains, too, because if and when they jump the species barrier from infecting birds to infecting humans, it is potentially catastrophic. And you might you, – you, that, that's what happened uh, with the Spanish flu that killed uh, 50 to 100 million people. Right. And so with the swine flu, what had happened was the virus had jumped from birds into pigs. And the reason that's a big deal is a little bit technical – but essentially, viruses get into cells by recognizing a particular protein or sugar on top of the cell, and they anchor there, and they use that uh, as like a lock and key mechanism to get in. Hmm. And so uh, bird flu recognizes the particular uh, as the key for the you know, bird lock. Human flu has the human key and lock. But pigs have both sets. They have the lock and key mechanism from both birds and humans. And so they're an ideal intermediate species for these viruses to adapt 
once they've adapted to pigs, it's a lot easier for them to adapt to humans. Um, and so the swine flu, what we were looking at was a bird flu that had adapted to pigs and was on its way to adapting to humans. And if we didn't act fast, we were looking at something potentially catastrophic. Understood. Wow. That, that is frightening. Um, and I really liked the concise way you explained that. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, this is what I'm working on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll bet. Um, what do you attribute? So, I mean, there's, we we've all heard the recommendations: social distancing, wash your damn hands. Um, wash your damn hands <laughs> for, for the love. Um, yeah, but I mean, there's you, you'll see news stories about young people in South Beach, or I was in a 55 and up community, and the the dude who drove us to the airport was talking about still going to a happy hour with like with elderly people too, and yeah, you know, there's like 60 people. What do you attribute that defiance to? of anti-intellectualism in America that is as old as America. And uh, the earliest writings that I'm familiar with that talk about this explicitly are Mark Twain's, and we haven't gotten any better. Okay. And so I think that people, I'm, I'm going to butcher Twain, but we have this pernicious idea in America that people's opinions are as good as other people's facts. And so there's a ton of people who just, I don't know, dismiss uh, hard-won scientific knowledge out of hand because it doesn't fit with what they want to hear or their political ideologies or whatever reasons they have. You know, everybody's got some cognitive dissonance. Sure. And I, I think that's part, part of what it is. And I think the other component is that human beings as a species are incredible, well, and all species in general, uh, I guess, are incredibly bad at conceptualizing risk. So, I mean, for instance, we have a ton of people who are afraid of flying, even though that's a relatively low risk, well, right now, maybe not, but in general, it's a relatively low risk activity, but people are willing to ride motorcycles, which is a much higher risk right. uh, activity. And so we're just really bad at processing risk in general. And so I think when people say, hey, there's a 3% mortality rate associated with this, which, by the way, Italy's is up to 9. Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes is right. People hear that and say, I think people hear that and internalize there's a 97% chance of survival, so what's the big deal? But they don't really think about, okay, that means one in 33 people who get this are dead. Right, and it, it's it's almost like they're filling in the enthymeme for themselves, but they're doing it incorrectly. Right. Uh, like they're, they're thinking about it with the wrong conditions, and it becomes almost this sort of solipsistic way of viewing the world where it's like, oh, well, what are the odds that I'm going to get this and die from it? Pretty low, so whatever, fuck it. You know exactly. I, I think there's a. I think especially for uh, people my age, there's a, uh, a ton of that. Uh, I, you know, that's the South Beach demographic, right? I don't know. You just kind of want to like smack people and tell them to just you know be a member of society and stop. You know, stop it. You're going to kill a bunch of people. Yeah, unintentionally, and you know, you're, unintentionally, right? Yeah, I mean, it's you. You made me think of one of my favorite quotes. It's a George Costanza quote, which is, you know, we're trying to have a society here, right? Yeah, we're living in a society. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so exactly. it's it's not all about you, you dipshit. Like exactly, to, like the fucking beach. <laughs> look out for others here, for the love of God, um, and and right. and let's. You know, let it may not be you, and it probably won't be you. But no, but how would you feel if somebody killed your dad? Yeah, I mean, accidentally, God, right? Give me a break. If someone was just careless, uh, going around, right. so I don't know, yeah. man. Okay, I have I have two remaining questions for you because I know you got a jet. Um, Hit me. But uh, one is I've heard from, and I've read any number of pieces that said this type of pandemic was not a matter of if, but when. So once we emerge on the other side of this, because, you know, no matter what society looks like, we always emerge from the other side of these types of things. Um, society will, I, in my estimation, be different and in some ways irrevocably different. But how do we avoid the mistakes of this one for the next one that will ultimately come 10 years, 5 years, 20 years, whatever, right? What can we as a nation first of all, as a society, and then secondly, as individuals do, to you know, ensure this type of thing doesn't happen again? So that's a really great question. Uh, and this is something that we, uh, as a society, were talking about after the uh, second-to-last Ebola outbreak, 
um, in West Africa, where the Obama administration was, was wrestling with this question, and they created a pandemic response team and put it on the National Security Council. And when Trump got into office, he dismantled it. And so, and after that, not only did he dismantle it, he cut funding to the CDC and uh, essentially shut down the program that we had in place where we were deploying virologists around the world in hotspot areas. So um, India, uh, Vietnam, Pakistan, Egypt, places like this that have historically have been uh, areas where a lot of viruses emerge from, and he fired the team that the teams that were around the world monitoring for these viruses. So one of the reasons that we hadn't had one in a century, a pandemic like this in a century, is because we notice when uh, a flock of birds gets an unusual virus, one that could jump to humans potentially, and we kill all the birds to make sure that the virus doesn't survive. Wow. So we're constantly monitoring for this and taking action before it becomes a pandemic. Right. So this is one of those jobs that when it's done correctly, nobody knows it's being done at all. Yeah. Uh, one of those beautiful, like, yeah, unseen society. Like, so Mike Rowe's show, which is the spiritual predecessor to my show, Dirty Jobs, these people just keeping society running without us noticing. Exactly. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like if a company gets mad at how much they're paying IT. You know, why are we paying so much if all the computers work? <laughs> you're paying a big, you're paying that much because the computers work, right? That's why they're working. So it's the same thing with this. You know, we, we have all these scientists on the payroll, and we don't have any pandemics, but it's because we have all these scientists on the payroll. Well, yeah, it's kind of like um, it, it's kind of like the wind, where you only notice it if it's unpleasant. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that's something that we need to uh, we need to reinstitute as soon as we can. I don't know. I, I'm not sure how we prevent future administrations from becoming as short-sighted, but I mean that's something that we as voters need to ensure that you know is a funding priority because you know it doesn't matter if you're going to die or not. You can't go to your favorite bar right now, you know, if you're 22 and you right. that's all you care about. Right, you and know, this affects all of us. Yeah, in in uh, one, in one way or another, and it's yeah. you know there's an old maxim that says the personal is political and i think when we're affected by something like this everyone is personally affected by this in one way or another and then that needs to translate into political action no matter which side of the aisle you're on i don't think anyone's enjoying our current situation right so i mean yeah get out there and vote call up call up your congress critters and tell them that you know science matters virus hunters matter uh, we don't want to have any more of these pandemics, so uh, we should really be hiring people to monitor for them. And then we should also probably be uh, increasing funding for uh, vaccine development, testing development, uh, and things like that. So the virus that I work on, Lhasa, causes this hemorrhagic fever uh, that is one of those really gross viruses, right? It kind of like melts your insides. Yeah. And there's some... There have been preliminary studies showing that we have something that could potentially be a good vaccine for it, uh, but there's no money to test it further. So we have this virus that's killed uh, hundreds of people in 2020 so far in West Africa. Uh, we have in my freezer in my lab right now what is probably a pretty good vaccine, but we can't put it into people because nobody's willing to pay for testing. Jeez. And so we need to prioritize stuff like that a little bit more. And it is going to be one of those things where people are going to complain, why are we paying so much for this? Well, it doesn't matter, right? And it's only not going to matter if it's working. Well, so it, we just need to remember that uh, going forward. Well, it's, it's like anything else. It doesn't matter until it extremely matters. Right, exactly. Yeah. And when people are doing their jobs correctly, which – you know, they've been doing for a long time. We've had uh, virology in this country has been really good, essentially since the Spanish flu. And so we've had a lot of really qualified, really smart people working on these problems around the clock, and we've been able to avoid a pandemic for a century. We screwed up this time. Yep. And well, here... nobody was on the job this time. Right. Okay. My last question to you is, do you have anything you want to plug? Because this is the time on the show where if people want to get in touch with you or find you... Um, you're welcome to plug anything. If you don't, if you'd rather just sort of 
keep working under the radar, you're welcome to. But anything you want to plug, you can do it now. The only thing I want to plug is a good book. I think everybody should read The Great Influenza. Uh, it's about the Spanish flu, and there's a lot of good parallels to uh, what's going on right now. And then if you want another good book about a virus that's not as relevant to what's going on right now, there is a book called Fever by John Fuller, uh, which is about virus hunters and how we find uh, new viruses. And uh, it's really good. I think people should check it out. I'll tell you what, Uri, this was uh, hugely insightful, enormously informative. Yeah, I, I appreciate the work that you do. I appreciate you taking some time to talk to me. And thanks to your brother for hooking this up. Uh, man, best of luck to you. Continued success. And you know what? Let's all wash our damn hands. Wash your damn hands. Also, thank you so much for having me on. I had a great time. This was a lot of fun. And that'll do it for episode 243 of the John of All Trades podcast with Uri Bulo. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you for doing this in such a timely fashion. This is when it matters most. And you know what? Wash your damn hands, everyone. I hope you're staying sane wherever you are. And I hope that we're all out of this as soon as we possibly can. And that only happens if you do your part. Now, let's pay some love to the sponsor, 4 Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They helped me through so many technical issues with this site. It kept getting hacked. Zach and his team just worked with me. They got it right. I think we've got the site where it needs to be. So online digital communication matters now more than ever since no one can leave their houses, it seems. So hit up Four Degrees no matter what you're doing. Promoting a good, a service, a campaign, a candidate, whatever it is, Four Degrees has you covered. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. I figured out how to produce podcasts remotely. So if you work for an organization that needs a podcast produced, hit me up, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. I'm out of here for now, but I'm back later this week with the sixth anniversary special. You're going to love that. We're talking radio, we're talking punk rock, and we're talking Denver. Three things I adore unabashedly. Let's get our minds on something else. Thank you for listening to me. Take care of yourselves. Wash your damn hands. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.